0: Welcome to SMT Pod, the premier audio publication of the Society for Music Theory. This episode is the first of a two part podcast in which Tyler Howie and Matt Chu have a conversation about untangling and complicating generic boundaries in post millennial punk. Hi, my name is Matt.
1: And I'm Howie. And together, we are Matt and Howie. <laughs> It's true. Yeah. Um, Matt. Where do you uh, where do you go to school, Matt? I'm a PhD candidate at the Eastman School of Music. And what about yourself, Howie? Hmm, I'm not sure if I'm a candidate just yet. Still got to check off <laughs> that uh, prospectus there. But uh, I'm a PhD student at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, studying music theory.
0: This episode is the first of a two part series titled "Analytical Frameworks for Post Millennial Punk." This episode is led by Howie, and it focuses on riffs, schemata, and genre in emo. We'll catch everyone up with Punk History 101 and then hop into some riffs. But first, we also wanted to warn people that many of the songs we play will swear and might include triggering explicit content.
1: Okay, so today we're going to be talking to you about a certain kind of riff in emo music from the 2010s. It's got a pretty interesting name. It's described as twinkly or called the twinkle, twinkle riffs, stuff like that. And even Haley Williams of the band Paramore has used the term to describe music by the band Pool Kids, Talking about their EP Music to Practice Safe Sex To, Haley Williams said, this is what Paramore wished we sounded like in the mm-hmm. early 2000s. <laughs> Love hearing mathy, twinkly parts mixed with heavy moments. This kind of music will always be very special to me. So there you go. Yes. There you have it. Love Haley Williams. That's great. Aptly put. Yeah, perfect. Excellent. And if it's good enough for her, it's good enough for us. So those are the sorts of riffs we're going to get into later. But before we do that, we're going to run you through Punk History 101 Then we're going to run you through Emo History 101. Once we're all caught up, we'll move back to those riffs. And so here we go, Punk History 101. This is going to be extremely brief, so bear with me. But Punk shows up around the 1970s in the US and the UK. You have bands like Ramones here in New York and the Sex Pistols over in the UK. It doesn't take very long for major labels to start capitalizing on punk music. And the first clip we're gonna play for you uh, because most of this music is from the U.S. Emo's from the U.S. It comes out of hardcore, also from the U.S. So we're gonna stick with the U.S. here. We're gonna play a clip by the Ramones. Blitzkrieg Bop came out in 1976.
0: to sing along with the AOs <laughs>
1: to start off that song. And I gotta gotta love that riff at the beginning. It is like the punk uh, mm-hmm. riff there. Okay, so after that stuff in the mid to late 70s, we get stuff like hardcore punk in the 80s in the US. The clip we have for you today is by hardcore band Minor Threat, It's called Out of Step, and music theorists might know this one from David Easley's article in Music Theory Online about riffs in hardcore punk. So here is Minor Threat. Yeah, a lot more intense. Yeah, what are some differences you heard there, Matt? Uh,
0: I mean, definitely a lot louder, a lot noisier. Uh, yeah. I mean, less yeah, less clear. Um, vocal timbre is, is rougher, and it feels in my face, and I can't understand all of the words. Not
1: that I could with the Ramones, or Ramones, I guess. All right, that catches us up to emo, believe it or not. So let's move on to emo history emo's history is generally structured in waves. Uh, one through now five, people posit a fifth wave starting in 2018 or 2020. We're going to stick to the original four for right now. Maybe uh, maybe in a little bit more time we'll have a better perspective and we can talk about a fifth wave. But for right now we're going to talk about the first through fourth waves and lucky for us they are each associated with a nice neat uh decade category clean Um, and cut yeah super easy (laughs) we're starting emo history with the first wave in the mid 80s emotional hardcore and i'd just like to say this is a really interesting thing Mm. now at the time Fans did not like this label very much. They considered themselves hardcore bands and a certain group of people, critics, fans, whatever, labeled them emotional hardcore. Some people say this is due to the lyrics being more inward and personal emotionally. Other people note dynamic shifts like, oh, they get softer in this section so they can get louder later. Other people talk about like more melodic riffs and stuff. So people focus on different things for this distinction, whether it's lyrics or musical features, dynamics, stuff like that for differences between emotional hardcore and hardcore. What's interesting from the perspective of genre is that this is the emergence of emo as a musical category. And David Brackett, in his book about genre and 20th century American popular music, says that when genres emerge, when categories emerge, there's often conflict about how to define it and sides struggle for discursive authority. So some of these bands who considered themselves hardcore, are now being labeled emotional hardcore, and they push back a little bit. Ian McKay of Minor Threat famously said, that's the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard in my (laughs) life, presumably because hardcore is already emotional. And what's interesting to us now is that obviously the side coining those bands emotional hardcore won that struggle for discursive authority because we now are doing an entire podcast episode about (laughs) emo as a musical category. So I'm less concerned with the particular distinctions people draw between emotional hardcore bands and hardcore bands, and more interested in just showing you these were the first bands that got considered emo, and they were called emotional hardcore, or the much cooler and better term, Emo core, which I would like to uh, bring back. If I oh. had the power to single-handedly do so, I 100% emo core. Oh yes, heck yes, emo core. Heck yes. All right. So here is a clip of "For Want of" by emotional hardcore band Rights of Spring, or emo core, or emo core. You know. Okay, yeah,
0: yeah. Matt, what do you hear there? Uh, a lot of different things. I mean, the, the bass in particular, stepwise motion, as you were saying, like, melod- uh, melodious. It's very <laughs> it's very melodic. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, uh, the, the vocals are a lot clearer. I can hear the words, too. But yeah, in terms of uh, timbre, um, the,
1: the drums have a similar timbre, but uh, a little less noisy. Yeah, definitely. The second wave is associated with the 90s, and this is where we drop the hardcore part of the label, and we don't have emo core or emotional hardcore. We just have emo. This is where emo starts to settle into its sound. So you have bands like The Promise Ring and Sunny Day Real Estate in the second wave. And now we're going to play you a clip of The Promise Ring. This song is called Red and Blue Jeans. It's from their album, Nothing Feels Good, that was released in 1997. Nothing Feels Good, great name for an emo record. And it's also, uh, that's why I think Andy Greenwald took it for the title of his book on emo that he published in 2003. It's called Nothing Feels Good teenagers punk punk rock teenagers and emo and in that book he says this is the wave, of like after the emotional hardcore stuff where like emo starts to become its own sort of thing teenagers punk and emo oh my <laughs> sorry <laughs> no you're di- <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah so let's listen to the promise ring and uh see if you can note some stark differences between this and the stuff that comes before it
0: All uh, right, yeah, Matt. What do you hear there? Uh, wow. Okay, that's. I mean, uh, hard to consider that the same kind of lineage of of especially coming out of hardcore. It's it's so much lighter, so much more. It's it's very clear. Um, you can hear all of the lyrics. There's a lot less like reverb in the mastering as well. Uh, it feels right, right in your face that you can hear all of the lines.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally right, and that's um. That's only, what, 12 years after the Rights of Spring stuff? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you can definitely feel we're, we're on to something different now, that the Rights of Spring stuff was definitely closer to the hardcore stuff. And then here we drop that hardcore at the end of emotional, and it's just, all right, now we're doing emo. After the second wave, we get, you guessed it, the third wave in the 2000s. And this is emo's mainstream period. This is the wave that most people associate with emo, where emo is getting played on Top 40 Radio. You have bands like Fall Out Boy or My Chemical Romance, Panic at the Disco. Emo historian Tom Mullen of the Washed Up Emo podcast has called this emo's hair metal period as a hint to its popularity as compared to the other waves. So we're going to listen to My Chemical Romance now some folks might be disappointed we're not going to do something from three cheers for sweet revenge but we are going to play we're not going to do a deep cut but we're going to play a welcome to the black parade from their record the black parade uh that came out in 2006 (laughs) yeah let's let's just listen how do you think this falls in like hearing just hearing the uh the promise ring and then following it up with the my chemical romance what uh what's going on there what do you hear oh howie i just this is a true encapsulation <laughs> of what i imagine
0: hot topic to sound like in musical form yes uh, yeah yeah i i mean we bring back a little bit more of the energy i would say um it's a lot less it's it's less melodic than the last wave and a little bit more rough in timbre, I would say.
1: Yeah, definitely, right? And we get more more distortion. Distortion is back. Those power chords, they're back too. This is the wave most people most people know about. Dan Ozzy has actually, he, he's just come out with a, a cool book called Sellout. Uh, he's a music journalist. And it's about in the mid to late 90s, following up Nirvana's Nevermind, a bunch of punk and emo bands get signed to major labels and his Mm. book chronicles a few bands and the process of them signing to a major label he's got a, a just came out this year in 2021 came out last month i think actually um and he he there's a chapter on my chemical romance about these bands after nevermind comes out the record labels are like wait we can mm-hmm. make some money on this like mm-hmm. indie and punk stuff. Like let's let's sign them. So that's how you get like Green Day's Dookie. That's how you get Jimmy Eat World assigned to a major label. There we would never get the middle without uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Eat World getting signed oh, no. to a record taking label. Taking advantage, taking advantage of the teenage angst. <laughs> exactly right. And now and then you get bands like My Chemical Romance, and we would never get bands like Jimmy Eat World or My Chemical Romance on. Literally top 40 radio, if uh, mm-hmm. if not for that craze. And that brings us to the fourth wave of the 2010s, which, hmm, interestingly enough, is not called the fourth wave. It's called the Emo Revival, which is an interesting hmm. discursive choice there, right? And it says some things about the genre's history. Um, and we're going to get into that a little bit later. But this is from 2012. This is emo revival band Glockamora. The song is Irrevocable Motherfucker. It came out on their album Just Married in 2012. Yeah, Matt. Now that you've heard all four waves, where how does the what's the revival sound
0: like to you? How can you not hear revival in that from the guitar timbre? It's the guitar timbre. It's the 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 light touch. The yeah, it de- definitely a lot lighter than say like my chemical romance guitar timbre, which was like heavily distorted.
1: Yeah, definitely. Right. And actually, what's cool is that we're going to be talking about uh, this wave and this style of riff that you were just mentioning. Right. I think the things that set it apart from the My Chemical Romance or emotional hardcore stuff are like, well, first, the clean tone, like you mentioned. Right. You don't have the distortion. On the guitars anymore another thing is that these riffs are pretty melodic in that it's not like power mm-hmm. chords where you got like two notes or three if you're doubling the octave and it's just like single lines i mean there were two there in that tune you had two guitars but they're each playing a single melodic line kind of reminds me of the you can get that from the rights of spring recording with that like single line riff but again it's distorted we get that cleaner tone that lighter touch on the guitar and that's the kind of riff we're going to be talking about today this is a style of riff that is common to the emo revival to be clear though not all emo revival bands played these sorts of riffs um it's just like this did become popular for a good number of bands so it's it's enough to call it a style here now this sort of riff has a name. It's kind of fun. It's called the Twinkle. And I think what lends it its name there, right, is partially that clean tone. It gives it a little bit of a, a sparkle, you know. Uh, and the techniques, like the different sorts, the techniques it's played with give you different sorts of onsets, give you different sorts of attacks, and it lends a nice character to the, to the riff. You have first, most important are the slides and pull-offs. So those are, those are the main things there. See if you, we're gonna listen to Glockamora one more time and see if you can pay attention to the tone and the techniques that are used in the riff. And this time we have a recording of just the riff being played on guitar. Uh, My friend Rachel was kind enough to record a couple riffs for us on extremely short notice so that you could hear them without the other instruments. So here is a clip of Glockamora. Just the riff, just the guitar. Okay, what could you hear there, Matt? Could you hear the uh, some of those techniques there? I mean, yes, I, yeah, I could hear it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, right. Yeah. So to talk about this style of riff in emo, we're going I'm gonna use a uh, schema theory, mostly from the work of Robert Yerdingan. Yertigen's work on schema theory was developed in the context of the gallant style of classical music. So it was not developed for popular musics, nor was it developed for things with guitar. But I adjust some things so that we can analyze this stuff fruitfully, because these riffs are a part of this style of emo, and I think schema theory is useful here. One thing I do use in my schema theory here is I draw on Frank Lehman's use of an attribute inventory in his MTO article on cadences in Hollywood music. He has an attribute inventory of pitched and unpitched attributes, and this way he can talk about the cadences with a little bit more nuance instead of saying it must have this, this, and this. He can say, oh, it's got these certain attributes, they're all in my inventory, and so I can still talk about them here. My attribute inventory is slightly different from Layman's. It is not just pitched and unpitched attributes. It's got things like timbre and performance techniques and formal placement. I designed it in such a way that you can map riffs onto my attribute inventory to see how typical or atypical they are. I have a list of parameters for the schema in relative order of importance. Um, So I start with the tone. It's usually almost always that clean tone, right? That's part of what makes the twinkle the twinkle. The slides. And pull-offs. Are, are essential to the sound as well. And so another characteristic I have of the Twinkle is that short, short, long rhythm. Did you end up catching that in the Glocka riff? Yeah, right, the da 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 right? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a big one, and I think that might actually be part of the pull-off thing because a pull-off, right, is not going to be as strong of an onset as picking a note with a pick or like plucking it with your fingers and so if you make it a shorter rhythmic value it's less noticeable that it's not as strong of an onset there but we also have a couple other main attributes right first uh it's formal placement right it's usually like we just heard in the guacamole example at the beginning of a song and often it is in a pretty thin texture. The Glockamore example is good because it's just the guitar at the very beginning. We're going to hear a couple examples that have guitar and drums or two guitars or something, um, but that that big part of that thin texture there. And a couple, a couple things here, just real quick. Another part of this is the tuning scheme that people use to play these riffs. Now, this is not as perceptual as the other stuff. You can't really hear a tuning scheme, but I'm going to play it on guitar. Um, The tunings, right, they're usually like these open chords, uh, like a seventh or a ninth chord. And... um, they make it so that like the open strings are consonant in a way that they aren't, if you just use standard tuning with like the fourths all the way up, the like E, A, D, G stuff. And so it makes it so when you do a pull off or like a slide to a pull off to an open string, it's more likely to be consonant. And so it facilitates a lot of this stuff. It makes it easier to uh, sound good. And another main feature of the tone here that I don't have in my inventory is that often this stuff is run through a compression pedal. I've already talked about how there are different sorts of onsets here. You have some notes are picked uh, with a pick or plucked with the fingers. And if you're a right handed guitarist, right, with the right hand by the pickups and stuff. And then other notes are, are gotten to by slides in the left hand, sliding from one note to another or pulling off from a string or hammering on to, which is just the opposite of a pull off. You like sound a string and then you like. Put a finger down to make a new note sound and so all of these have like slightly different uh, sorts of attacks and so the slides and the pull-offs and the hammer-ons are going to be slightly softer than the picked or plucked notes and so a lot of times people run this sort of riff through a compression pedal and all that does is raise the floor and lower the ceiling so your softer attacks like the pull-offs and the slides are going to be not so soft and the louder attacks like the picked or plucked notes are not going to be so loud they get a little bit softer and then that brings all of those attacks closer to a more equal volume and then you can hear this stuff a lot more clearly and actually for all of the riffs Rachel recorded for us, on all of those, she did use compression. I double-checked with her, so uh, there you go. There you have it. Now that we know all of the attributes, why don't we take one more listen back to Glockamora and see if we can hear all of that stuff. <laughs> Okay, so Matt, uh, what could you hear there? Could you hear any of the stuff we were talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's at the
0: it's a very it of the piece. So we start off with the with the schema. You know, it's twinkly. We have the short, short, long all of the the notes sounding within a relatively small range. Um, So that's probably the the compression pedal in in terms of amplitude. Uh, It also explores like a melodic range that I think is kind of wider than most uh, melodies that we, we associate, but yeah, I would say very
1: twinkly. Yeah, right. And you get like, it's in that thin texture, just the guitar. Like you said, it's at the very beginning and you get that clean tone for all of that stuff. Also, nice uh, use of amplitude there. That was that was clutch. And uh, yeah, so this, I mean, I'm just using this podcast to make everybody listen to Glockamora because Just Married is a great <laughs> record. Uh, but let's move on from Glockamora. Let's play another example. It's going to be pretty important for us going forward. This is going to be uh, the song Never Meant by American Football. And this one's going to play uh, an interesting role here. So we'll, we'll have to remember this one. But let's take a listen. I won't talk too much about it. <laughs> Okay, so that's Never Meant by American Football, probably one of the most famous emo riffs. So it's gonna be important for us later, but for right now, I'll just say that it is a prototypical example, and actually even more prototypical than that Glockamora one. Generally, uh, like I said, it's presented in a thin texture. Often that texture is one or two instruments and, and not just like solo. There's one or two other accompanying things there. So there we had drums, and the guitar playing the twinkle riff. And that's more common than the other stuff. So that's a prototypical example. It's got everything. We got clean tone, short, short, long. We got formal placement, the beginning of the tune, placement in a thin texture, just drums and guitar and it is in an alternate tuning. I know you can't hear that, but that's what facilitates that that motion there. That's all I'll say about it for right now. Let's listen to a few more clips in like quick succession. They're all gonna be slightly different. This first one is Death by Red Eye by Charmer. Came out in 2018 on Charmer's first LP, uh, and it's self-titled. So let's take a listen. <laughs> What could you hear there? Any stuff we've been talking about? Oh yeah, slides, uh, very twinkly light. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say. It has, has the attributes. Yep, it's got it, all of them in that inventory. It's got them, and it's also same sort of texture as the American football one, right? Drums and guitar. Now, okay, here our next example is by Max Seal. This is off their uh, second <laughs> EP called. Yeah, no, I know. And (laughs) the song is called Twilight Fun Zone. (laughs) All right, Matt, once again, what could you hear? This is a good routine we have going. Yeah, I could. I mean, a
0: little different that we have we have two guitars going at once, but otherwise it starts off the song, uh, yeah, very, very light and clear melodic.
1: Right, yeah, so that one, all the same stuff, it's just not, instead of drums and guitar, it is just, it's two guitars. But Mm -hmm. still, thin texture, one other instrument, you get all the other stuff. Now, interestingly enough, like you said, you can't hear the tuning, And so not all of the Twinkle stuff uses an alternate tuning. This one is actually in standard tuning down a half step. So there's an example of the Twinkle in standard tuning. And I think it's the only one in this whole presentation. So there you go. (laughs) Uh, It can happen. Let's listen to one more example, slightly less prototypical. This is by Retirement Party. Now it should be said this is off of Retirement Party's first EP and After this EP, Retirement Party, I don't think they have a single other song with the Twinkle Schema in it. They, like, Hmm. settle more into, like, they they rock. You know what I mean? They're a little more, like, rock and roll. But they still release this one, and so we're going to use it for the Twinkle Schema here. Let's check it out. This one came out, I think, also in 2017. It's called Meet Me in Montauk by Retirement Party. Was a long time coming so big it sank into the ground translucent prerogative it seemed much more derogative with hands tied where only i can see perfect perfect matthew it's time to play could
0: you do Uh, Yeah, I mean, not at the start of
1: the song and it comes in in the middle of the texture, but when it comes in, you can hear it right right exactly so here we get the song kicked off and you get vocals and rhythm guitar and then eventually you get the lead guitar kicking in with that twinkle there but still pretty much the beginning of the song there we go those are those are some examples of the twinkle schema they're they're pretty prototypical so now let's return back to the american football song the first tune we played after "Glockomora," never meant by american football So let's listen again. We have another clip by Rachel of Just the Riff to uh, refresh everyone's memories. Here we go. Now, what's interesting, right? We said the Charmer tune came out in 2018, Maxiel 2017. I think Retirement Party is 2016 or 17 on that one. Mm-hmm. And we said Glockamora was 2012. All 2010s. Wow, they all fit that nice decade category for the Emo Revival. <laughs> um, and the American Football tune never meant that one actually came out in 1999. So Mm. there's a big gap here Mm -hmm. Yeah kind of interesting But would you agree that like These riffs sound like The Neverman riff like they all fit Together oh yeah okay very very Twinkly have your attributes Neverman actually comes out in 1999 So it's it's way separate Like you said it sounds like the other Examples it's got all the attributes You know Um, (laughs) Another interesting thing about American football is that LP came out LP one and then they broke up a couple years later but then they came back and released another album and they actually put out two more starting in 2014 so interesting they come back with the emo revival here I'd like to cite an article by music journalist Ian Cohen along with David Anthony Nina Corcoran Emma Garland and Brad Nelson It came out in February of 2020 on Vulture.com. It's called The 100 Greatest Emo Songs of All Time, a sweeping look at rock's most misunderstood genre. It gives a nice rundown of emo history in the beginning if anybody's interested in some of that stuff. But importantly for us, it ranks "Never Meant" at the top of its list the greatest emo song of all time. Which, if you're coming at emo from the standpoint of My Chemical Romance, you might be surprised. You'd be like, come on. Like, welcome to the Black Parade. That should be up there, right? <laughs> and Cohen, for his credit, says, look, never meant wouldn't have topped this list 15, 10, or even five years ago, right? And he's writing this in 2020. So in 2015, this wouldn't have even topped this list. But now... It certainly does, and Never Meant and American Football have almost come to like stand in for the genre. He says that the importance of American Football cannot be overstated. And I would agree, and this is reflected in all sorts of memes, right? Especially about Never Meant, the song. That one becomes the most popular. I don't know. Maybe because it's the first song on the record. But it becomes the most popular. There are memes about the riff. Like the tabs for the riff are a meme that get posted around on like forums and stuff. You also have all sorts of funny arrangements of never meant like never meant but it's 8-bit never meant but it's a hurdy-gurdy cover never meant but it's on banjo and stuff right like <laughs> yes, have you have funny. you heard any weird yes. uh, never meant covers oh i like the i like the 8-bit one uh that that's probably my favorite <laughs> the 8-bit one is is very good i do like the 8-bit yeah. one well, you know, the real head's like the 16-bit one, so you <laughs> get on it. Gross. Um, Boo. But, but yeah, so that becomes a meme, right? It becomes a meme to cover the uh, riff and different stuff. Even the album art for that LP, the album art is like an off-center house with like a green filter on it that becomes a meme like people posting the simpsons house with like a green tint and it says the simpsons in the same way the formatted uh (laughs) of american football is in the album cover but it also becomes a thing emo bands do like that charmer Mm -hmm. record the charmer self-titled 2018 has a picture of a house on the cover people have made jokes about like oh i love house music right and it's emo (laughs) bands
0: Yeah, I've I've seen a bunch of people post on the emo Reddit with uh, tattoos of this house and
1: album. Yep. Yeah. Very meme worthy. Lots of people. There's lots of pictures of people like kneeling outside the house, like taking a pilgrimage Mm -hmm. to the American Mm -hmm. football house.
0: Yep.
1: (laughs) So I want to talk about Never Meant as not only an exemplar of the Twinkle schema, but also as a prototype for the Twinkle schema. So to talk about the Twinkle Schema as a prototype, I'm going to quote Robert Yertigen talking about prototypes in his book, Music in the Glant Style. So Yertigen presents his prototypes in a more abstract way than in Western Notation, because he says that, quote, standard music notation over-specifies a prototype's constituent features. So here's a quote about one of his schemata, the Romanesca. He says, The schema Romanesca, that is a mental representation of a category of gallant musical utterances, is likely in no particular key, may or may not have a particular meter, probably includes no particular figurations or articulations, may be quite general as to the spacing of voices, their timbres, and so on. All that useful indeterminacy would vanish were the schema to be presented as a small corral in whole notes, probably in the key of C major with a 4-4 meter. To avoid that kind of false specificity, I will represent schema prototypes in a more abstract form. I've referenced that I represent the Twinkle schema prototype abstractly as well in the form of my attribute inventory, but I would now like to talk about a particular prototype. We've already talked about how Neverment is very well known in the community. Mm-hmm. It's basically a meme. You have 8-bit covers and the hurdy-gurdy stuff mm-hmm. and there's all different kinds of covers of Neverment. And I've cited Ian Cohen who says that the song has pretty much become a stand-in for the genre at this point. Basically this means that if you ask someone to think of a twinkling riff like a twinkle riff from emo they might pull out different exemplars some of which we played earlier so maybe someone will bring up maxiel or someone will bring up glockamora or someone will bring up whatever band but anybody aware of those other exemplars is probably also aware of never meant what what do you think yeah i mean i absolutely
0: agree there's I think it speaks a lot that yesterday I was on the r slash emo reddit and I saw a post that said the riff and I knew what it was before viewing the video. It's someone covering the (laughs) never meant riff. It's really kind of the cultural equivalent to like the jazz lick as people call it, you know, the da 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 -da type thing. Yeah, 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 exactly.
1: Yeah, it's basically the lick, right? So even if people think of different exemplars, if they're aware of this style of emo, they're probably also aware of never meant. Even if one listener might be aware of Gakamura and another one might not be, they probably share never meant as an exemplar in common. Mm-hmm. So to return to the Yertigen quote, where he says the mental representation of a category of, in our case, emo riffs, right, may or may not be in a particular key, but probably does include particular figurations or articulations, and probably is not quite general as to the spacing of voices, their timbres, and so on. This is because, for a lot of listeners, the twinkle schema is never meant. That is the mental representation. And, of course, there are other exemplars that might be described as prototypical, which is why my attribute inventory is more general. But most listeners are aware of Nevermend. Eric Drott, in his article, The Ends of Genre, lays out a conception of genre that is constantly shifting and changing. It's dynamic. And the things that gain traction or appear stable for a given genre are just the things that enough people have agreed upon enough times does that make sense so genres are constantly shifting and changing but some things appear more stable than others whether those are sonic associations like this sort of twinkling riff in this style of emo or whether they're ways of thinking about a genre's history, like perhaps thinking of a genre's history in waves, like with emo. And the reason these things appear stable in some ways is because enough people have agreed on that enough times. Enough people have agreed on the importance of never meant enough times, whether that agreement comes in the form of a genuine article saying that it's become a stand-in for the genre or whether that agreement comes from a very funny cover of the riff so in eric draught's words never meant status has been constantly enacted and reenacted it's been repeatedly recognized and taken up so enough people have agreed enough times that never meant is culturally significant in this genre What I'm trying to say is that since Neverman's status has been constantly enacted and reenacted, repeatedly recognized and taken up, it means that for this historical moment, for this genre, it fuses the functions of exemplar and prototype. In my dissertation, I explore the relationships between schemata, exemplars, prototypes, all of that good stuff, and genre in greater detail, but to tie all of this together with Nevermend, I have one more example for you. Because this is a podcast, I can't show you a visual meme, but I can play you an audio one. So this example is a little bit longer than the other ones because it is less prototypical. The Twinkle Schema comes in the middle of the form, so it's not as clear-cut as the others. Matt and I are going to play you out today with a clip from Texas emo band Select-A-Bonus. Before we do, Matt, just want to say, thanks for talking with me about emo. It's always the best time. Howie, you know, it's always my pleasure. Here it is, Athletic Jorts by Texas Emo Band, Select a Bonus. <laughs> I took everything I felt and crafted all my words into a pseudo-poetic dramatic Exactly what odds I love. Made a promise to myself that I'd rip out every page and step. Their yeah, you were entirely wrong with the point of the song. To say, I can never hate you. And if I'm being honest here. While I unravel all my fears. Like, I would do that. It's a battle. Like, I will come with given the time. So tell me, you never meant, you never meant, you never meant when you said I.
0: We'd like to thank the SMT editorial board, especially Megan Lyons and Jenny Beavers, And we also want to thank the outside reviewer, Dave Easley, whose
1: insightful comments really contributed to the project. We'd also like to thank my friend Rachel, who recorded two of the riffs you heard today, so that you could hear them without all of the other instruments going on. And Matt and I would like to thank our friend Jeff, who has spent hours talking to both of us about emo. So, thanks!
0: Thanks, Jeff. Visit our website, smt pod.org, for supplemental materials related to this episode. And join in on the conversation by tweeting us your questions and comments at smt pod. SMT Pod's theme music was written by Zhang Cheng Lu with closing music by David Voss. Thanks for listening.